<clears throat> Both are on. Good Sunday and happy 4th of July, South Valley Community Church family. We are continuing our series, Lessons from the Early Church in the Book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 17 to be specific. And today we're going to be looking at two responses to the gospel. And Luke, the author of the Book of Acts, puts these two stories right next to each other. And I think it's for a reason. One group responds one way and another a different way. And how they respond, one of the groups, is specifically highlighted. Special attention is given to it, and that's done for a reason. So we're going to take a look at why one response is highlighted and given significant attention. So Acts chapter 17. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. Okay, this is... Um, a similar pattern that we've been seeing. The gospel has been spreading. What started as this kind of small group of the first followers of Jesus has been growing and growing, and these followers are taking up missionary work. They're going to new locations and proclaiming the gospel. Now, in this case, we're looking at Paul the Apostle, and I want to draw attention to a couple things. First, it says that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. Special attention for the word reason. Greek, it's diolegomai, and it appears in the book of Acts 10 times. And it repeats again and again with Paul doing the same thing again and again. He reasons with people, and he reasons with them from the scriptures. And the reason why this is important is Christianity is not a blind faith type of religion. It's not saying uh, you just have to believe it even if it doesn't make sense. Paul isn't going around and saying, well, this happened and you must have blind faith. Just trust it. Just trust what I'm telling you. He's reasoning from the scriptures again and again. This pattern repeats itself 10 times. And typically Paul has a, has a mode of doing this. He'll go to the synagogues first to his Jewish brethren, and then he'll go out and preach to Gentiles. And the same, same thing happens again here. He's reasoning from the scriptures. And then it says he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to rise and rise from the dead. Now, there's something that's e easily missed here. I find it fascinating. Um, it says Paul's claim is that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to die, and rise. Now, think about that. That, that's saying that it wasn't as if Jesus came and he was teaching and then the plan went bad and he was crucified and then God the Father raised him up to kind of justify and prove that he was, he was the Son of God. It wasn't if it was done haphazardly. It wasn't like, man, things didn't go to plan, but luckily God the Father's still in charge and he could have Jesus rise from the dead. Paul is saying that it was necessary that the Messiah would suffer, which is interesting, that it's necessary that he would die and necessary that he would rise from the dead. And if you reflect on that, that's revealing something about the nature and character of God. It's revealing something about His plans before the foundations of the world is necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. 
And then it says that Paul, because of this proclamation of the gospel, that he is able to persuade some people into becoming Christians. And in that list of people who, who gets converted to Christianity is a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. So within this proclamation, you have Jews becoming Christians from the synagogue. You have God-fearers, which are Gentiles, Greeks, who have a a respect and appreciation for Judaism and the law, but they're not quite all the way bought in. And then you have this group of leading women. Now, remember where we started this series, that the, the gospel was said to be preached to all the nations, all the different ethnicities, that the worldwide body of Christ would be composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you're seeing that fulfillment take place right here. Let's continue. Verse 5. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for him to bring them out into the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They were all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset, and after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Now again, I made this note last week, but the text starts off by saying, but the Jews became jealous. And one of the important things that we have to, to remember is that this is an intra-Jewish dialogue and debate. The first followers of Jesus are Jewish. The apostles are Jewish. They're proclaiming a Jewish Messiah. And so when it says, then the Jews became jealous, that's not speaking of the whole ethnic group. It's speaking of a particular group of them. And they're getting mad at Paul, who is also Jewish. Now get this. It says that they formed a mob and started a riot. They formed a mob and started a riot. Now think about this, because there should be some kind of parallel themes that you might that might come to mind for kind of the situation we find ourselves in the modern world. Someone makes an argument, they make a truth claim. And rather than counter that truth claim with another argument or a better argument or try to see if this truth claim is right or wrong, people just get so upset and they attack rather than present a counter argument. They attack and then they form a mob and they want to bring them to the court of public opinion. It says they bring them to the public assembly. And so rather than trying to dismantle the argument or the truth claim being presented, there's just an attack on the people and there's emotion and it overtakes the people and the mob is formed and a riot breaks out and there's all this chaos happening. And what's interesting is that they say, they accuse them of, they're turning the world upside down. Now, that's not an argument that's saying um, what Paul and the followers of Jesus are saying is wrong or we don't think it's right. They're, they're just saying the accusation is it's turning the world upside down. In other words, they don't try to seek the truth. They rather just discredit the message by saying it's socially dangerous. They're wrong because it upsets the social order. It's dangerous. It's dangerous thinking. But again, it's not trying to, to bring a, a counter argument that's logical and sound. And what's, what's kind of funny about this is they form a mob and a riot and they're saying the Christians are the ones who are dangerous. The Christian, you know, the people who are going around saying that God uh, has revealed himself in, his, in, in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, who is crucified on a cross for the sins of the world. That's the dangerous thing. Meanwhile, we're, for, we're forming the mob. Okay, that's how, how that kind of section ends, and then it goes on, and it, we'll, we'll see this, this same pattern repeat itself with a different group of people. 
Verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. Okay, this is this, this same type of routine. Again, Paul goes in, he goes to a synagogue, and he begins preaching, persuading, reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is Lord. What's different about this group, and the scriptures draw our attention to this, it says they're more noble. Now, why are they more noble? Because they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they're presented with this, this gospel message. This, this first follower of Jesus, Paul the Apostle, is saying Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they don't immediately throw it out. They don't immediately say he's crazy. They don't immediately believe it. They have an external standard that they judge Paul's words by. And they have the Old Testament, the same Old Testament that we have. So there's new proclamation being made, and they have this external source of truth and authority that they submit themselves to. And they judge Paul's claims by the standard of Scripture. And because of that, they are said to be more noble. Now, this is significant, and the Scriptures want you to know it's significant. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed, by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to them as quickly as possible, they departed. That same group that started the mob traveled 45 miles to Berea in order to do the same thing. And once again, Paul has to flee. Now that will be a pattern. Paul shows up, preaches the gospel, people get mad. Sometimes he's kicked out of the town. Sometimes he's beaten, sometimes he's arrested, but eventually he goes from place to place preaching the gospel. Now, I wanna go back to this idea that the people in Berea had more noble character because they examined the scriptures. That might not sound like a big deal, but that is a huge, giant, monumental deal. This is so significant, and it seems so small, but it's not. Think about this. They have an external standard, an external source of truth and authority that they submit themselves to. They submit themselves to. Now, what you need to know is that there has been massive shifts in the way people think about truth and authority. Um, and this started hundreds of years ago, but it's definitely been accelerated in the last several decades. But the question is this, where do people locate truth and authority? Where do you look to find truth and authority? And then do you submit to that truth and authority? See, for the most part, if you were to go back a thousand years, people looked at the world and they thought that truth and authority 
came from out there. They had some external source that they would submit themselves to. Truth was something to be discovered, and then you would conform your life to that truth. Um, a simple illustration of that would be, think about a, a child, a five-year-old child. Um, mom and dad say, don't, don't eat the cookies from the cookie jar. And the child goes, okay, it's wrong to eat the cookies from the, from the cookie jar. There was an authority, namely mom and dad, outside of the child. That authority was out there. And then the child submit themselves to the authority of mom and dad and the law that they gave, if you will. And that's a simple example, but that happens, that happens with all kinds of external sources. There's, there's laws, there's governments, but ultimately, most people throughout history saw truth and authority ultimately coming from transcendent sources like God. And so the Bereans, they see the standard the, is, is in the Bible. This is where truth and authority come from. Therefore, I am going to discover the truth, submit myself to it, and conform to what it is saying. And because of all kinds of shifts and things that have been taking place philosophically, culturally, psychologically, things have begun to shift. Now, I don't have time to get into to all the things. If you want like a, a brilliant summary of kind of what's shaping culture right now, there's a book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it kind of documents what I'm about to just touch on lightly in, in more significant ways. But because of many reasons, philosophically, psychologically, culturally, we're beginning to shift from seeing truth and authority as something to be discovered and conform ourselves to, and it's out there, it's an external standard, to truth and authority is found inside, inside of the person. And so we are to follow the desires of our own heart. We are to do what we feel is true on the inside. Now, again, there's tons of reasons for this, but I'll, I'll give you just a few to show you how this is working and maybe it, it could make a little bit more sense. But think about this. Um, a, a thousand years ago, Picture yourself living, you're in agriculture, like most people. You depend on farming and crops in order to survive. That's how you live, that's how you make it. You couldn't, you couldn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to plant my watermelon seeds in late October because I wanna have nice, juice, juicy, fresh watermelon in late February. It didn't work that way. It would, it, you had to plant the seeds at the right time and you had to know the seasons. And you had to know what seeds should be planted in what months, knowing that they would come to harvest in certain specific reasons. In other words, you had to submit yourself to the weather patterns in order to survive. Now, in addition, um, you were completely dependent upon rain. If the rain didn't come, the crops weren't watered, you and your family could die. So there was these external causes that you were completely dependent upon, completely out of your hands. If you didn't plant the seeds at the right time, you didn't know the ground that they needed to be planted in, the rain didn't come, you could die. And so your life became dependent upon external things that you had no control of. So ultimately, you had to submit and conform your way of life to external things. You didn't have any, any choice. You had zero choice about it. And think about this um, with farming. Now, we make vacation destinations in deserts. 
because of advancements in, in technology and irrigation, we can make vacation destinations in the desert. Back in the day, it's like, that's a desert. You can't live there. You didn't have no choice. It wouldn't work for you. But now you can make a vacation destination in the desert. And we have greenhouses. So if you want to grow some type of watermelon at a weird time of the month, you could do it with a greenhouse. And so technology gives you options that you just did not have before. Or think of this. Uh, if you go back a thousand years and you were born in a village, you most likely would spend your life living and dying in that village. I mean, maybe you moved a little bit, but you wouldn't go very far. I mean, most people lived within a 50-mile radius. They lived their entire life within a 50-mile radius of their birthplace. Now, sure, there was, there was some types of travel. Most people, you were born in that village, you grow up there, you die in that village. And guess what? Whatever profession your father was, that's your profession. Your dad's a carpenter, you're going to be a carpenter, and your children are going to be a carpenter. Now, think about this. This doesn't sound like a big deal, but modern people wrestle with career options. And specifically for young people, you wrestle with them in a, in a new kind of way that people haven't. It becomes a burden and an anxiety. What should I do with my life? What should I do with my life? What's going to give me job satisfaction? What's going to make me feel fulfilled? What, what am I good at? What, what's going to make me happy in the long run? And so you have all these career options that you're getting to choose and you're having anxiety about which one to choose. Back in the day, you didn't have that. You, this is what your family did, and that's what you're going to do, and that's what your kids are going to do. And so you put all of those things together, farming, irrigation, career, geography, and you can begin to see that for a very long time, so much of your life was determined by external forces that you said, I must conform my life to just in order to survive. And now, because of many reasons, I just listed some, some brief ones, you have options. You can choose your own destiny. And so what, what do you submit yourself to? You begin to submit yourself to what you feel is right on the inside because you've got so many choices. And then you begin to hear things in culture where, where doing what you feel is right and doing what makes you happy becomes the ultimate source of authority and truth. Following your heart's desire is always the right thing to do. And it's like, Really? Really? If you would to look back at your life, if you actually followed your heart on some circumstances, it led you down a path of destruction. Now, this message of truth and authority being on the inside and not being out there is now in our modern world amplified by, by music and, and culture and, and the entertainment industry. Think for a moment. How many children's movies, how many Disney movies have at sort of the heart of the narrative someone following their heart, doing what they feel is right on the inside, and that actually being at odds with like their parents. So it's like Little Mermaid didn't listen to dad. She followed her heart type of thing. And so much of, of culture is being shaped by that because we are now seeing truth and authority as something internal for us to decide. So in the past, Truth is on the outside, it's to be discovered and we conform to it. Now, truth and authority is found on the inside and we believe the external world should conform to us and our truth. This is a fundamental shift, a huge shift in the way people look at the world. Now, this brings us all the way back in a weird way to the Bereans. Brings us back to the Bereans. Why? 
because the Bereans heard the message and they didn't, their first instinct wasn't, what, we're, we're going to listen to what our hearts feel about this. We're going we're gonna to think, we're going to do what's right, what we think is right on the inside. They had an external standard that they submitted themselves to, and that was the scriptures. They heard a new message. It was very bizarre at the time, historically, that the Messiah was actually crucified and rose from the dead. Didn't matter if it was weird. It didn't matter if they didn't like it. They submitted themselves to the scriptures. Now, I can't tell you how important that message is for Christians. I can't tell you how important that is for Christians in our current cultural climate. You have thoughts and feelings on the inside. Some of them are right. doesn't mean all feelings on the inside or your heart's desires are all wrong all of the time. That's, that's not the point. The point is, what do you submit yourself to? What do you submit your heart's desires to? What's the, where, does, where does truth and authority rest? And if you are a Christian, we have a book, God's Revealed Word, and, and we submit ourselves to it. And here's the key, whether we like it or not, because guess what? There's stuff in the Bible that my heart doesn't want to do. If, it was my, if I was following what was on the inside of my heart's desire, I wouldn't do some of this stuff. I don't want to turn the other cheek if I'm hit. If someone punches me, I don't want to bless them and pray for them and turn the other cheek. I want to knock them out. That's like my, my heart's desire. I don't want to be extremely generous with my money. I want, I want to buy more things, right? But the Bible says, no, no, no. You don't let money become a God. Money is not, not your treasure. Christ is your treasure. And so you're to be generous with your money. And then on top of that, if I do be generous, if I am generous, and I do something that's so right, and, and man, that's so generous, I want people to know. What does the scripture say? No, you don't let people know, know of your, your generosity. That's between you and God. So there's all these things in the Bible that I, by my default nature, don't want to submit myself to. But I don't follow an internal standard. I don't follow my feelings and what I think is right in the moment. I have God and his word and I submit myself to them. And it's incredibly important that Christians today follow the example of the Bereans. When you hear something, when a truth claim is made, when someone says X or Y or Z, okay, what is my faith? What does my belief, belief in Jesus and his word tell me about this? And you say, God, I'm going to submit myself to this authority because truth and authority rest in you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So ask yourself, is that how you approach the Bible? Are, are you seeing it as a book that you, you bring yourself under? Are you submitting yourself to it? Are you reading it enough to actually know what you need to, to think and to believe? And so the main takeaway from all of this is the Brians are said to be of more noble character. And it's precisely because they were eager to hear the message and judge it with scripture. So Christians, Christian, be a person who knows the word of God and who submits themselves to the word of God. Whatever that may be, wherever Jesus may lead, you follow. So Father, uh, we give you thanks for the example of the Bereans. And um, it's, it's, it's not easy to to say whatever I may be thinking or wanting or desiring and feeling in a moment is 
it, it must be brought to, to the standard, to your word. Um, sometimes it, it's not difficult, but sometimes it, it's extremely difficult. It could be reconciling with an enemy. It could be breaking up in a, in a bad relationship. It could be a number of things, but we want to be a people who follow you and submit ourselves to your word, Lord. So by your spirit, give us the strength to do that. Convict us in areas that we're not in alignment with your word, and may we be bold and courageous and find our source of truth and authority outside of ourselves and in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The only thing I would say is the prayer felt weird at the beginning. Is that weird? Did it feel like you weren't sure where to go with it? Or yeah, because I never, I, I never am. So that's why it feels weird. Usually it feels pretty normal. Like that one seemed like, do you know when you try to like still teach a lesson in the middle of your prayer? You yes, and I hate that. It felt like that. I probably happened. did. Do you want to pray out again or just leave it? Okay. No. Cool. People people stop at the prayer. I know the YouTube analytics. <laughs>